everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 116. My name's Jane McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Nama Joel Anderson. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Barb Wilson, who will be discussing her experience of breast cancer along with the organisation Working With Cancer that she founded. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're really pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, James Barber, who will be discussing his role as a pre-treatment therapeutic radiographer and equalise the Society of Radiographers EDI group. Welcome, James. We've finally managed to get you on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Right, James, for anyone who doesn't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career pathway to date? Yeah, so as you said, I work as a pre-treatment therapeutic radiographer. Um, So I qualified in 2011 from Sheffield Hallam, with Joe as one of my lecturers, Uh, like half the radiographers in the country. Um, So my first job was at Derby, where I was just a sort of normal rotational radiographer. Um, After about a year, I moved on to Cheltenham, which is why I started specialising in pre-treatment a lot more. Um, So that gave me the opportunity to work in CT as well as virtual simulation, which is the sort of simple planning of palliative treatments and mould rooms. So where we create a lot of the uh, patient-specific immobilisation devices that we use in radiotherapy. I spent about four and a half years there, primarily in pre-treatment. Um, that's why I sort of progressed to advanced six level. And after that, I moved over to Guy's and St. Thomas's in London, uh, again, in pre-treatment as advanced seven. Um, so there, it was mainly focused in CT. While I was there, we moved across to the new cancer centre at Guy's. So that gave me the opportunity to be really involved in implementing new technologies and techniques. And working at a big centre like Guy's also gave me a lot of exposure to new things like Sabre and lots of really advanced techniques and technologies. That was really interesting for me. Um, That was the point my career through pre-treatment kind of took a bit of a detour. Um, So having worked on all those developments and things, I then took on a role as a research and development radiographer at Guys. So they're really lucky at Guys. They have like, it's quite a big department. They have lots of additional roles in-house that you don't have in smaller departments. So I was able to work in research and development and get a lot more understanding of things like clinical trials and sort of how that works behind the scenes, as well as get a lot of understanding of what's coming up, as well as the opportunity to be involved in my own development projects. So sort of looking at what development need there was in the department and then using things like audit and taking that forward and then publishing those results and taking them to national and international conferences. So that was a big change in kind of how I viewed radiotherapy and was like a really good opportunity. I really enjoyed that role. Um, but after I've been doing that for a while, there came an opportunity to do a maternity cover in uh, as a cancer information systems lead radiographer at Guys. So that was one of their operational management roles. Um, and again, that was quite a big change of pace from a very clinical and technical focus role into looking at what you do in more of a operational perspective. So it was lots of number crunching, lots of spreadsheets, lots of pulling 10 years of data and then trying to uh, predict what would think things would happen in a few years' time, um, as well as getting a look at how a lot of things work, like billing, commissioning, a lot of the things that people think are incredibly boring in radiotherapy, but actually, once you get into it, it's quite interesting. 
Um, so yeah, did that for a year and then moved on to my current role. So I'm currently the pre-season superintendent radiographer at the Royal Free Hampstead in London. Um, so yeah, that's where I am now. And so sort of back in free treatment after a few years of detouring. Why did you pick therapeutic radiography in the first place, James? So having listened to a few of your podcasts, this is an answer very similar to a lot of people. Um, I completely fell into it. So I kind of always wanted to do something science So halfway through my A-levels and was not quite getting the grades I would have needed to get into medicine, which was kind of plan A. So was kind of lost for a few months, sort of at the end of my first year of A-levels. Um, I got a letter through the post from a I can't remember which university now, Portsmouth or something, saying, like, look at doing diagnostic radiography at our university. And I was reading that at the local uni- university, Sheffield Hallam, and this was the next page along, and I thought it looked more interesting, so I thought I'd give it a go. I, I turned up to the interviews, not even really knowing what the job was, but um, turns out I quite like it. So, James, you've obviously done lots of roles as a therapeutic radiographer. Um do you think that sets you apart from many others who kind of stick to one area of specialism? Do you think kind of navigating through lots of different roles gives you better insight maybe into radiotherapy as a whole? I'm not sure about setting you apart, but it's definitely, as you say, it gives you a really good insight. It lets you have a really good understanding. So part of my role now is sort of that management side of things. So you have things come through, you have to sort of look at whether you can support them or not. And you sit in lots of meetings and having done all of those roles. So seeing how things like development works, clinical trials, research, kind of the operational side of things. It definitely does help you in sort of how you approach a lot of the problems you face day to day. So you get a query of like, can you support running this clinical trial? Like from your section's perspective and... I'll know a lot easier what to look for in that sort of trial protocol to pick out what the usual kind of sticking points and stumbling blocks are, as well as when you're involved in looking at things like developing your service or replacing pieces of equipment, you get a much better idea of kind of cost factors and scoping out what your numbers will be, how long you can support something for. One of the things I've taken forward from my previous role in cancer information systems is I still work with our department manager a lot in the um, capacity and demand planning for our department because we, as a smaller department, don't have a specific person for that. So I've kind of taken a lot of those skills forward into my existing role of say, still looking at what our workload is and projecting forward what it might be. James, you talked about some of this stuff sounding or being very boring. How do you make it sound sexy so that other people want to do it? Because it can't just be you doing it. (laughs) This is very true. Um, Wow, how to make it sound sexy. I mean, I think it's like a puzzle a lot of the time. Like you get these big spreadsheets of data and partly it's learning new skills. Like if you enjoy computers and actually it's quite interesting, um, learning how to use tools like Excel in new ways and not just a simple can you make it add things up, but can you take like 10,000 rows of data and then process it into like a simple spreadsheet? So if you enjoy puzzles, if you enjoy kind of problem solving, it is quite enjoyable and interesting. And one of the conversations I often have, now I'm in a more people management role, that can be sort of, that comes with a whole own set of challenges, which anyone who manages people will completely understand. And you don't get any of those problems with spreadsheets. The numbers don't argue back. The numbers don't cause you 
that level of stress and worry. So it has a lot of benefits. James, what are the challenges of people management and also, I suppose, in that leadership role? I think for me, especially when I moved into my current role, I kind of knew that that people management would always be the bit I found hardest to pick up because I've always really enjoyed the technical side of radiotherapy. Um, I'm still figuring out a lot of it, to be honest. I've been in my role about three years now and no one ever really prepares you for taking that step into people management. I think that's kind of the running theme that I hear when I talk to a lot of other people in similar roles to mine. The big challenge is you go into it not really knowing what you're doing um, and kind of figuring it out along the way. But you, it kind of takes into account a lot of the things that you do as a sort of team lead radiographer. So when you're running a unit, you have to role model, you have to support people, but you have to do it at kind of a consistently higher level. You have to always role model, you have to always be sort of keeping an eye on what's going on, keeping an eye on the training and development needs of your kind of section and the people in it. And not be afraid to say the things that people don't necessarily want to hear. So we all know when we were a lot more junior and newer to it, either we would do things because we didn't know better or because sometimes people want to push the boundaries or test things. And you have to be very willing to kind of set those boundaries and say, you know, you did this well, you need to do this better, or what do you think your training needs are, and then kind of work to address them. It's it's a difficult balance to kind of keep that all happening and keep sort of those difficult conversations, have those difficult conversations, but then not be a complete tyrant. Like we've all heard those stories of either when we were students or from other people who trained who had those superintendents who everyone was terrified of. And you know, I had them when I was training and newly qualified. Now that I will never be like that person. And actually, now that I'm in the role I'm in, I still don't want to be like them, but I can understand a lot more why they were like that. So, James, on the topic of difficult conversations and role modelling, um, what is the Equalize programme, I guess, for the Society of Radiographers? So Equalize is kind of the member-led, so it's by, it's by members for members very much within the site of radiographers. So it's like their EDI arm. So Equalize kind of underwent a rebrand in the SOR a few years ago. So the site of radiographers had a big internal uh, equalities review following the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and one of the outputs from that is that they split sort of the old Equalize, which is sort of quieting down for one reason or another into subgroups so under the equalize umbrella they created different groups for the different kind of protected characteristics groups so for example there's a group which i work within which is the lgbtqi plus equalize group there's the me equalize group which my friend constant runs um and there was a few other potential groups they set up um for example for uh people who work with disabilities women young workers who were which have picked up to greater or lesser extents based on what, how much members have engaged with them. Um, at the moment, the two mostly active groups are the CME and the LGBTQI plus group. So they're very much forums for radiographers who are within the site of radiographers to engage and put things forward, either patient-centered things. So you can put forward something you think needs to change for patients, be that patient education, 
or patient information or things for staff. So it's very much a forum for people to engage in and put forward their ideas and then support them in taking them forwards. Um, and we'll be engaged with the sort of professional arm of the Society of Radiographers regularly to help take things forward. And we'll also take things to the annual delegates conference, which I know some of your previous guests have explained in quite a lot of detail. So I won't go into what that is too much. But we can take forward motions suggested by our members for things that we would like the Society of Radiographers to write into their sort of policies and working practices. Why is it important for you? I, I mean, I think it's really important. It's good to keep sort of equality and diversity and inclusivity on the sort of front page of everything we do. There's a lot of inclination historically within the NHS to kind of tag that kind of thing on as an afterthought. So everything, as I know, Naaman, you've done a lot of work in, there's a lot of things out there which are very much geared towards how medical professionals are educated. They're educated for sort of white, straight, uh, cisgender people. That's kind of how medical education in across all professions has been for ever basically um which has led to a kind of culture of anything from an equality viewpoint being seen as kind of a add-on at the end like it just gets tagged on later which isn't a great environment to come into as a patient or as a healthcare worker Um, having groups like equalize very much engaged with their professional bodies means that you can constantly keep those agendas on the front page so things like all your equality-based things don't get seen as something that's just got added on or we've adjusted it because someone's walked through the door who doesn't fit that generic mould. We've made everything considering everyone from the outset, which is a much better way of feeling like if you come in as a patient, you don't want to be seen as an afterthought. You want to be felt to have been considered in how everything has been set up, your whole service, your whole patient information, the environment you're coming into. But it's also a great way of engaging with members. For example, um, since we set up the LGBTQI plus group, we've had this year the Site Ray Dog for first Pride parades. So we marched at London Pride in collaboration with the Royal Free. And we marched at Belfast Pride. And we marched, um, well, I say March, it wasn't really a parade. We were at UK Black Pride. So they're all great ways to engage with our members in those different areas and those different groups, as well as engaging with the people out there like when we marched at London Pride, there was a lot of people who would call over people from the Royal Free or the radiographer group saying they'd had radiotherapy or they'd been treated at that place. And sort of it gives you a very brief opportunity to kind of explain to them a bit more about what we do and who we are and just get it all out there. Show that if you're going to engage in healthcare, it is inclusive and it is a welcoming space. Hi everyone, so we wouldn't be able to do what we do without some sponsorship and help from some amazing people. So we've just got a short advert here coming up just so that you can hear some of the products from one of the sponsors that have supported us right from the start. We have an incredibly exciting time at OSL at the moment with new products within our portfolio coming to the market. One new product is ClearSight Bolus, completely translucent, semi-adhesive and compatible with surface-guided radiotherapy solutions. Another product is the IBA MyQA Proactive System, the only commercial prospective risk management solution for radiation oncology. You'll find much more information about this on our website. If you would like to browse our products, 
please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 462 694. So James, from an equalised perspective, is there anything particularly that you're proud of that has been implemented that you can really see how equalised has helped to assist with that change? Yeah, I mean, um, so my group within equalised, we've done small, like there's tiny things we've done, like we've developed a new SOR inclusive pride for like Lanyard, or we were involved in also like, so the, for those who work directly in radiotherapy, you'll know that there's most centres now are using the National RCR Radiotherapy Consent Forms, um, which I think are an incredible tool. It's a really good way of standardising the quality of things, meaning that everyone is getting the same level of information and care and what's out there. But it did kind of suffer from what we were saying earlier, that people who wrote it were very much educated to towards sort of white, hetero, cis people. So when you read them, they weren't, when you read them with an EDII, you, they didn't come across as the most inclusive thing. Um, so one of the things that we've done as part of our group is reach out to the Royal College of Radiologists and discuss how to make them more inclusive. Um, some of those changes are really small. For example, the original breast cancer consent form didn't have a particular um, section on it about um, parenting children even though and it's not even an lgbt thing but it like one in 100 breast cancer cases are male breast cancer so it's still a relevant factor but also if you read for example the gynae consent form there is a lot of emphasis in the later text around sexual function whereas if you read the uh, anorectal or the prostate consent forms there isn't that same consideration given to people who would engage in anal sex um, there's a lot of things on there about erectile dysfunction, that classic thing, which I know you guys have talked about a lot of erectile dysfunction is often seen as the only part of sexual function with prostate cancer, completely ignoring the fact that your hormones will destroy your entire sex drive, not just the fact of whether or not you can get an erection. But actually, there was nothing on there about the long-term impact it can have on whether or not you can have receptive anal sex, which is obviously a big thing for gay men as well as anyone else like anyone can have anal sex you don't have to be a gay man <laughs> um so yeah they came out recently and a lot of the changes that we suggested were taken on board and included which i think is a really good step forward and um, it shows that big organizations like the rcr are willing to put inclusivity on as part of their kind of agenda they are willing to include it and it's also a really important step in terms of big institutions like that that are sort of doc doctor-led institutions are willing to listen to people who aren't doctors. Like they have various people who've con contributed now who are therapeutic radiographers, who are CNSs. And I think that's another really big, important step forward for us as a profession, that we're seen as people who are able to engage on those kind of bigger forums and just, just the AHP kind of level discussions. Um, so yeah, I'm really proud of that. Have you had much engagement with patients through all of that as well, that process? Um, unfortunately, no, that isn't something we kind of had the scope to engage in the web. It would be great to get their feedback. Um, and I'm not sure if that's part of how the RCR is kind of implementing those consent forms. And 
I'm fairly sure they have patient representatives on their panels, but I'm not sure what inclusivity they have within those patient groups. Um, it would be great to get patient feedback on the updates to the consent forms for sort of all of the EDI things. But I kind of left that very much with the RCIs. I kind of just walked on the role of I'm going to give you kind of the insight from as much as I can from the LGBTQI plus community. And yeah, left it with them to sort of take to their expert panels. I suppose not to take the amazing work that you've done away from you, James, because it is absolutely brilliant what the Equalise group has done. Um, but also Numan um, has made changes to the Royal College of Radiologists consent forms as well. Numan, your opportunity. Go on, let the audience know what is it that you got changed as well. 16, 15 months ago at Estro spoke about changes to skin tone for radiation-induced skin reactions. So exactly as James said, things have been viewed from a certain lens and medical education obviously talks about redness for skin tone, but that doesn't work for lots of people. Um, so people with brown skin, black skin. So yeah, getting that changed to include terminology that is inclusive of all skin tones. Um, I found the process quite difficult, to be honest, to not get angry, not keep fighting and saying this is taking too long even though I still think it took too long I think that's my issue with the bigger processes that while we need things to change and patients need something now we are all at the mercy of the the machine so we can't always just overnight change something even though we know it's what needs to be done and yeah that's for what I've struggled with the most but yeah very proud of it but loads more work to do still a long way to go and I don't think I'll be able to just let it go in the wider picture and looking at other professions what needs to change and stuff like that I don't know James if it resonates with you that it's almost like a responsibility moving forward that now you've done something quite big it's about taking it forward even further definitely I mean sort of going back to what you were saying I agree it when you get involved in these things it's very easy to be really impatient but sort of going back to what we were saying earlier Joe like I think because of the other roles I've been involved in, things like clinical trials, developments, those operational things, I've gained a much better appreciation of everything that you have to do. Because like, you can't just change things overnight. There's so many levels of meetings and panels and discussions and reviews that things have to go through. And a lot of these are things that people do it, are doing in addition to their day jobs. In the same way that you and I have done these things in addition to our sort of day-to-day -day working, a lot of people engaging from the RCR side are also doing that in addition to their normal work. So, yes, it can get frustrating, and I am guilty of chasing them a good few times over the 14, 15 months since I first got in touch with them, saying, you know, when is this going to get issued? But once you kind of be involved in those things a lot from the other side, you kind of have to learn patience because when, like, the fifth or sixth time your project that you said would be done in three months isn't finished 12 months later, you gain a lot of forgiveness for other people who were doing the same things. Um, but yes, I, and with, with regard to what you said in terms of an obligation to keep taking these things forwards, I do agree. Like I, like many things, have very much kind of fell into Equalize because my friend talked me into joining when they kind of relaunched it um, and then got swept along with it and sort of took on a more leadership role in the LGBTQI plus group. And I never really saw myself as the kind of radiographer who would be involved in that patient level of care. Like I always saw myself as a very technical, sort of technically driven, technically focused radiographer, like give me a 
a challenge, a problem, a puzzle, and I will get on with that. And I was never, I mean, Joe will remember from when I was a student, I was never really engaged in that sort of what I used to sort of the soft, wishy-washy, patient side of things. <laughs> um, but now that I've kind of begun engaging with it and especially pushing forward that agenda almost and engaging with it and making sure that people are aware of it, yeah, when you start doing it, you kind of want to keep that momentum going because the more you dig into it, the more you become aware of where the shortfallings in the systems are, where things need to improve. There's, as you said, so much out there that we aren't addressing that we really need to be. And you start um, engaging with other other groups, other people who are doing that kind of work, um, you really learn a lot. Like I've been to a few events, like there's um, like Outpatient held a really good event earlier this year, sort of looking at those LGBTQI plus cancer specific issues. And when you start hearing from patients who've been through those experiences or people who are setting up specialist services and clinics and all the issues that they run into, you just become more and more aware of everything that needs to happen and you can't help but want to make things better. But I think that's why it's important to keep clinical facing people like myself engaged in those processes. If it's just people who are non-clinical doing it, you're never going to bring it into practice. And I think sort of where I work in that clinical management role, it makes it very easy for me to bring those things into where I work. For example, there's the... Um, really amazing piece of work that the Society of Radiographers did a couple of years ago on inclusive pregnancy status checking. And that's where we give patients, we ask all patients of the ages that your trust defined as someone might be able to become pregnant, whether or not they're pregnant, irrespective of their presenting gender, to avoid the risk of inadvertently exposing the fetus of someone who is pregnant, but appear presents as male. Because the last thing you want to do from for any radiographer is to kind of do a CT scan and then see something like see a baby on that scan you weren't expecting because you you know the implications of that and that is something that's happened like in this country and abroad. So inclusive pregnancy status checking has been rolled out and I know a lot of centres have hit resistance with implementing that either from staff, from patients, or from media outlets who shall remain nameless. Um, but because of the role I had in my department, I was a clinical superintendent, so I'm in the management team and I'm in charge of the pre-treatment section where that is primarily done. It means that you can kind of just push on and do it. Um, it sounds harsh, but no one has a choice. They just have to do what I say. So it works great. I love that, James. Um, which leads really nicely. Um, but then you can see though, see how well it works and roll it out. Which that point, James, <laughs> leads really nicely onto my next question about how important is allyship? Because I absolutely have been taken out of my bubble by working with amazing colleagues, including looking at EDI. Um, you know, what would you say to people who want to get involved in Equalize or want to learn more about, you know, equality, diversity, and inclusivity, and how they can ensure that they're providing care that's personalised to every single patient? Yeah, I mean, allyship is amazingly important. Like, work that people do, like yourselves, like promoting things, keeping EDI in the front of everyone's mind is so important. And 
I think kind of the point about a lot of the protected characteristics is that they are comparatively small groups within professional or patient populations sometimes. And you can't always make all the changes you want to make on your own. Um, and I think that's something that's very easy to forget, especially when you live and work somewhere like London, where it's extremely diverse. And I think all the departments I've worked in or have visited in London have had a reasonable level of representation from a lot of the different groups that need to have that voice within the department. It makes it easy to take that forwards. And your patients are very diverse. They tend to be very well informed. As soon as you start stepping further away from that sort of bubble of progressive thinking, yeah, you need your allies because you are never going to have what everyone you need in your department. Like you could easily have a department who has no one from the LGBTQI plus community or who doesn't have anyone who isn't white working there. That doesn't mean that you don't have to have all of those other things in place for your patients. Just because none of your staff tick those boxes doesn't mean that your department doesn't need to cater for anyone who could walk through the door because we all know that anyone can walk through the door. They are all entitled to just as good a level of care that is just as relevant to them. And that doesn't that isn't only the case if there's someone who works in that department who sits within that same bubble of you. Changing topic a little bit, James, what advice would you give to any therapeutic radiographers who are thinking about maybe specialising in pre-treatment? Because I definitely think pre-treatment is like Marmite. People either absolutely love it or they rotate through pre-treatment with high levels of anxiety and adrenaline and will often sit rocking at night. <laughs> uh, you have completely touched on one of my big bugbears there, Joe, of how but I feel like pre-treatment is massively underserved um, through how students educated as well as how rotational staff get to experience it. I love pre-treatment. Like it's, I've, I've worked in most of the different areas that you can work in in radiotherapy. And pre-treatment is what I've come back to because I really love it. You get all the technical challenges that I really enjoy. You sort of you never know what you're going to face. Like very much when you're on treatment, patients have already been to pre-treatment, they've been through planning, like most, well, a lot of those problems have been solved. You've dealt with how, what position can they manage, what prep, prep for their treatment can they manage. All of that's been done. You have to figure all that out at pre-treatment. You get to write the instructions rather than following them, which I think is something amazing. I really like that. But it's really difficult to pick that up when you're a student, when you get an odd week here and there in pre-treatment, and yet you get months and months and months at a time on the treatment units. And I get that the rationale for that is that there just aren't the pre-treatment rotations to go around. You only get so much time because there's only so much time for you to have. But it just leads to qualified radiographers who don't often get the lectures and the teaching and the education on the background of pre-treatment to prepare them going in. They come in as you say, like a rabbit in the headlights. They'll have spoken to all the people on treatment floor who were all, oh, no, we don't really know how pre-treatment works. We don't really like pre-treatment. They've not been prepared in at university and then they turn up to pre-treatment. They are completely lost and they end up hating it because they have a bad placement experience. And they only have those couple of weeks. They can't get past that sort of initial stumbling block, which you'll have 
anywhere. Um, but it's like, it is the best place to work. You get to make the patient's first experience in radiotherapy a good one because they will turn up terrified because 99% of them have no idea what radiotherapy is. Like, apart from the sort of returning customers, you, they've met the doctor, they've had a brief conversation, which is mainly focused around things like side effects and what impact it will have on their survival or what it will do for their symptoms. But they don't really explain the technicalities of radiotherapy. So they turn up, they have only the vaguest idea of what's happening, they are terrified, and you you don't get to have the, all those repeated exposures to build a relationship like you do on the treatment floor. You get one chance to sit with them, put them at ease, give them all the information that they need in a way that works for them, and make that first experience a really good one, which is a completely different skill from my perspective to what you would get working in kind of the treatment area of the department. I think if you like technical things and you like the opportunity to make someone's experience a really good one, then pre-treatment is a great place to work. And I've known pre-treatment radiographers who come at it from both sides. Either they're like me and love a technical challenge or they want to come in and give the patients an amazing experience. But you can tick both those boxes as well as anything else you want to do. Thanks, James. Um, and you also um, have a pre-treatment special interest group as well, don't you? Yes. So that was something we set up a couple of years ago, um, along with my colleague over in Shrewsbury, Marcia. Um, she, we set up a special interest group much like all the others. So it's sort of a, a place for pre-treatment staff to network so they can talk to each other, ask each other questions find out how everyone's doing things and that's particularly relevant these days with the sort of rollout nationally of saver work that's made a lot of the things we do across radiotherapy but particularly in pre-treatment a lot more complicated we're having to tackle a lot more things like motion management more uh, complex patient positioning methods a lot of things that for years most centers didn't have to worry about and they are difficult again it's things that there isn't really a textbook on. There's not training on. We don't learn about it. And a lot of the time, there aren't even like things like the master's modules on it, like you would get for topics like IGRT or planning to support those rollouts. So it's a really good forum for those of us who've had exposure and knowledge of those more advanced techniques to, to disseminate it to people who need it. So we're looking at having our first annual meeting in spring of next year, which we're setting up in collaboration that's being supported by oncology imaging systems um that's going to be a hybrid um meeting so we'll have part of it face-to-face -face in london and people can sign in remotely um but a lot of the things that our members have asked us to talk about are on those sort of advanced pre-treatment imaging methods things like 4d ct scanning so where you take a ct scan that shows you how everything moves inside the patient as they breathe so you can account for that at their treatment planning as well as different methods of reducing that movement to making plans more achievable. Um, all of those kind of advanced, that advanced end of what we do in pre-treatment. So it's an amazing platform for people to be able to share and ask questions. No, oh, thank you so much, James. So the time has just rapidly gone. Um, the last question that we always ask all of our guests is top tips. Is there anything that you would advise patients, healthcare professionals, students out there? Yeah, so I think most of my bits of advice are mainly towards healthcare professionals. Um, so always 
as we said a few times, consider everyone. So consider the staff you work with, your patients, their carers, their relatives, their friends, whoever comes with them. Consider them all as individuals. So they all have specific needs um, and you need to consider all of those needs and make them feel valid, respect them. Like We are all different and everyone needs a different thing from their sort of healthcare interactions. So always consider that. Um, I think the second one would be take whatever opportunities you can when they come along. So as I said, my career has not been linear and I've been lucky enough to have a lot of really good opportunities. So try out if a secondment comes up, give it a go, even if you think it's something you might not love. Secondments are temporary. If you hate it, you'll go back to your normal job. If you love it, you found out you really enjoy something and you've gained valuable experience. So when those things, maternity covers, temporary contracts come along, give them a go and find out if you like it and at least gain some new insight and experience. And I think the last one will be to engage with the national networks, things like SIGs, things like your equalized groups. Um, they're a great way of learning, sharing knowledge, getting support um, and networking with like-minded people. So I think definitely engage with any of those networks that you feel apply to you or interest you. And get in touch with me. If you want to sign up to Equalize or the pre-treatment special interest group, drop me a line. Oh, thank you so much, James. They were really good tips. Um, so as always, thank you for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been myself, Jay McNamara and Norman Joelka Anderson. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google uh, form linked along with the podcast. Our next guest feature will be Dr. Heather Williams, MBE, who will be discussing her career to date and health inequalities. Thank you all so much. <laughs>